Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Phoenix, Arizona, it's time for Phoenix Business Radio, spotlighting the city's best businesses and the people who lead them. Thanks for tuning in to Legitimate on Phoenix Business Radio X. I'm your host, Rochelle Poulton. I'm a consumer rights attorney at AZCLG, here to bring you the full perspective on issues that I handle every day. And welcome to Series 2, The World of Debt. And today's topic is landlord-tenant legal issues. My firm represents a lot of people on the tenant side, specifically people who have been evicted or receive huge bills for post-move-out damages. But today, we also want to explore landlord-tenant law from the landlord side. So basically, the do's and don'ts of owning investment residential real estate. So with us, we have three awesome guests to give us their legitimate perspectives. And we have Irene Plowski, owner of Independence Insurance Group, PLLC, which helps people with their personal and commercial insurance needs, including yours truly. And we also have with us Nick Stratton, owner of Bullseye Property Management, LLC, a full-service property management company for Arizona residential real estate. And last but certainly not least, Andrew Hull, Dr. Evictor himself, Partner at Hull, Hull and Holiday, author, educator, keynote speaker, and practically a legal icon in Arizona. So welcome all of you and thank you for joining us. And please tell our listeners more about you and your businesses. Ladies first, Irene. Hi, it's great to be here. Uh, well, my name's Irene Plosky. I have been in the insurance industry for 16 years. I have owned my own agency since 2009. And uh, we are an insurance brokerage agency. So that means we represent several different insurance companies to find the right combination of coverage and price for each of our clients. Awesome. Awesome. You don't look old enough to be doing this for 16 years. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you. And Nick, your turn. Uh, Yes, my name is Nick Stratton. I got licensed in real estate back in 2005 tried sales for a little bit and then went and worked for a big property management company, started out as a leasing agent and worked my way up doing pretty much every facet of property management uh, from inspections to being a property manager to signing up new owners and then worked for a large company overseeing about 2,000 doors across four states and decided to scale it back a little bit and start open up my own business back at the end of 2014, beginning of 2015. And here we are today. Awesome. 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 And you have a fabulous website. Thank you. I like your story. It's awesome. All right. And Andrew, please. Um, I graduated from the University of Iowa, came to Arizona and have been practicing law for almost 40, 40 years at this point. Our firm Uh, only represents landlords and property management companies. And my two partners, Kevin and Denise Holiday, have in excess of 25 years each. And we do a lot of training and, uh, again, just specialize in handling landlords' issues with tenants. Love it. So as you can see uh, or hear, we have quite the panel (laughs) for today's topic, landlord-tenant law. But first, let's do some background. So today we're covering residential landlord-tenant issues. Commercial real estate is a totally different animal. The Arizona rental market is huge. There are literally thousands of single-family residents available for rent in the Valley of the Sun. And there are also many laws that govern this topic, including the Arizona Landlord-Tenant Act, contract law, the restatement of property, case law. And of course, every city has its own ordinances. And bonus, the law changes to accommodate new problems like bed bugs and, of course, domestic violence. And coming soon is regulation on short-term vacation rentals. So... 
if you think you know the rules, please be sure to check with a professional. Key takeaway today. Uh, also, there's numerous agencies involved, like the Arizona Department of Housing, Arizona Department of Real Estate, Arizona Department of Insurance, Arizona Department of Revenue, and of course, the County Assessor and Recorder's Office, and it just goes on and on and on. Uh, regulation of real estate in Arizona is quite extensive, so... That's why they call it a legal practice. You are constantly practicing, and that's why you need professionals to make sure that you are getting the right answers. And do not forget, we are not giving you legal advice. This is just a friendly conversation about a fun topic. <laughs> so now to our guests. Please, please tell our listeners about your role in this industry and what you do or why people should use you. <laughs> so in, in my case, I provide advice to both tenants and landlords, um, in this case for landlords, how to protect their assets. In many instances, landlords assume certain things that their policy may not cover. So it's very important to have uh, a good broker and a good relationship with that broker to um, address the, the changing needs of the, of the landlord, uh, as well as the uh, laws and regulations. Um, so we focus on strong relationships with all of our clients. And so it's very important uh, because of that relationship that we uh, continuously have a conversation with our clients to make sure that their needs are covered. Awesome. And Nick, your turn. That's me. So my role in my company is I'm, I'm the owner operator. So basically I oversee it all in a property manager's role. And that includes for a landlord, uh, when they hire me, they hire me to secure a tenant, find a, a qualified tenant to rent their, their property, whether it's a single family home or a multifamily unit. Uh, also to oversee the day-to-day -day operations, which includes rent collection, overseeing of maintenance and contractors. And then, of course, if there are any legal issues, I get the legal team involved. Uh, I actually use uh, Andy's office quite extensively, so they're, they're great. And then, of course, uh, move-outs and, and marketing. Uh, and then the normal accounting things that go along with that, monthly statements to owners, 10 and 9s at the end of the year. So those are the, the basically the, the main structure of, of what I do and oversee uh, for each of the property owners that I represent. Awesome. And Andrew? Primarily, we're, uh, I guess, a litigation-oriented law office. Uh, evictions take up probably 80% of our practice. And so we may have... Um, apartment complexes that have multiple evictions they need done down to the single family owner that has maybe one rental house. And we do a lot of training. We offer free training to any of our clients. Uh, once a month, we do landlord tenant law. Uh, the next month we'll do fair housing and then just alternate those. We do a lot of defense work on disputes over security deposits. Uh, <laughs> either they didn't get their deposit or they didn't get what they felt was a fair amount. And there are some procedures they can follow in, uh, under the uh, Small Claims Act uh, to pursue those claims. And we get a lot of our clients that more, I guess, more do defense work from claims tenants bring. But Awesome. So if you're that purely landlord side. <laughs> mm -hmm. So we're going to get the full perspective here today. So in your opinion, what are the top three things that someone, someone should know before they start renting real estate? And we'll start with you, Nick. Oh, starting with me. Okay. Threw me off a little bit. 
top three things from an investor perspective, there's two types of landlords in, in my mind. There, there's an investor who uh, will be purchasing perhaps a, a bulk assets. And then there's the, the one owner that decides to move out of state and keep their home as a rental. And I think for both of them, the thing that both should understand is it is it look at it as an investment property and not as a property that one used to live in or to be attached to it. It makes it easier to make business decisions when it comes uh, to property management. And that, that makes things a lot uh, easier. The second thing uh, I would say that is to look at all the costs involved as well as the potential costs uh, from an investment property, which includes there there is maintenance that happens. I call a house a living organism. Uh, just like our bodies, when we get older, we have bumps and bruises. Houses, uh, you know, when they get even a year old, uh, things happen, things break, uh, things malfunction. So just be prepared for any maintenance costs. Uh, and then uh, the third thing I would say for them to know is to uh, be prepared uh, or I guess to have uh, you know, in mind what their long-term strategy is uh, when they go into it. So for some, when if they're moving out of state, they say, well, I want to hold on to it. Uh, because they may want to move back. And that's one strategy. Another one may say we want cash flow. So understanding your strategy will help you determine what your best course of action is. And we'll be talking about it later. I saw on that line as far as uh, Airbnbs, for example. But, you know, if someone wants to come to their home, you know, three, four months out of the year, then a long-term lease option is probably not going to work for them. And they're going to want to do something where it's more of a short-term option. Awesome. What about you, Irene? Well, I'm going to say consult with a tax professional and plan for any immediate and long-term tax liabilities. Uh, create an LLC, I think, is very important uh, because it adds an additional layer of protection for the landlord and um, also to um, uh, discuss with that professional how to, how to write off expenses the best. Also have a discussion with uh, your insurance agent on how liability applies to um, a landlord because um, in the example that Nick gave, when somebody lives on a, on a residence and then they move out, that insurance policy has to change to address the needs of a landlord uh, because a homeowner's policy addresses the needs of the owner of the property that resides there. So that is a very common mistake that we see, and it's, um, and it's very important to address. Uh, also consult with an attorney and have a procedure in place uh, from the rental application process, running background checks, have a solid uh, lease agreement, and uh, one that protects the landlord and the property, and that addresses how issues will be resolved. All solid answers. All right, lawyer time. What would you say, Andrew? Well, first thing I think is to get everything in writing. Uh, (laughs) You don't want uh, verbal agreements. So, um, and that comes along with just knowing the laws. Uh, In our website at our office, I think we have probably, oh, maybe 60 things, a landlord checklist, uh, (laughs) and just make sure you have a good solid lease agreement. Then I guess the other thing would be to walk the property with the prospective tenant uh, so you can get the condition down at, pro- at move in and compare it at move out in case there's, in case there's any claim for uh, damages, property damages. Solid. Those are very, very great tips. So what are the most common problems that your clients experience and what do you do to help them? 
So for me, as I mentioned, is uh, when people assume that their old policy will cover their new needs, and that's usually never the case. Uh, so making assumptions is, to me, always the wrong approach. Um, it's a conversation with um, an insurance agent that can solve a lot of issues. Uh, being proactive, to me, is the way to go versus learning once uh, a claim has already occurred. That's not the right way to learn. Uh, so that is the main thing that I see, is that people assume that because uh, they, have a, they have a policy, it'll cover the property, and there is much more to protect. There is the liability. Again, the liability of the, of the landlord uh, is completely different than the liability of a homeowner. Um, and it's seen differently. Also, um, the insurance policy has to cover for the landlord the loss of rent. So that means that if there is any type of loss in the property that is being rented that makes it inhabitable uh, and the tenant cannot live there, the landlord is going to be losing that income. So with the right policy, that is something that can be claimed as, as part of the um, overall claim process. Wow. Pretty cool. Nick? <laughs> I think some of the things that uh, when I encounter owners, whether they've been uh, using me for a while or they're brand new owners, sometimes uh, they don't know what they don't know. Being able to have a resource uh, like Andy or going to continuing education class, they often will ask me to do certain things uh, that they don't think about because they say they own the property. So, uh, for example, different notices or going to inspect the property. Uh, and so I educate them a lot on what I can and can't do and what's in their best interest. Uh, and so I'm able to meet their needs, for example, you know, doing inspections in a timely manner or uh, getting a condition of uh, report of the property. Also handling different situations with the tenants, uh, different uh, legal things that may come up regarding rent collection uh, or um, different maintenance things and working with them to create a solution that works for all parties because there's the, the legal aspect of property management and understanding the law, but then in the practical uh, aspect of it is figuring out how, you know, to because at the end of the day, it's still working with people. Uh, and the biggest thing is uh, even though it, it they may be right on a legal perspective, it's it's better to kind of smooth things over. And that's kind of what my job is, is is more of a mediator sometimes. Uh, and that's how I help them solve their problems to keep keep them happy, keep them protected, because I do represent the landlord. And at the same time, I do have to be fair and honest uh, with the tenants. And so to, to make that kind of smooth and, and create every uh, a good situation for everyone. Yeah, you don't always need a hammer to bat a fly. No. <laughs> <laughs> And Andrew, what would you say? Well, I think uh, we do, like I said, uh, the bulk of our practice is evictions. Uh, but when a owner comes to us, there may be multiple types of um, notices they could serve. So we have to de determine which notice is appropriate. Non-payment of rent is pretty clear. Uh, whether something's grounds for an immediate eviction, uh, which is like criminal activity on the property or non-compliance, unauthorized occupants or unauthorized pets are brought into the property, then we instruct the landlord on what type of notice to give, how to serve it. And um, then other than that, as I mentioned, we do a lot of uh, uh, defense work. So we get a lot of tenants that are filing uh, small claims cases for their security deposits. And the landlords want to use our office so we are able to transfer the matter out 
get it into the regular justice court and go from there and give them their options um, uh, depending on uh, the issues that are presented. Yeah, because every case is, I think, unique. So I don't think I've ever run across a tenant on my end that had the exact same problem as another tenant. I imagine that's probably the same for landlords. Yeah, you think you've seen it all and something new comes up every day. Yes, it's fascinating. Fascinating stuff. So (laughs) let's see, story time. Tell us a story about a time you really helped somebody. Uh, No names, keep it, you know, no personal information, all that fun stuff. Who wants to go first? I'll go. I've got a couple that come to my mind. Um, One is with a tenant that moved in just uh, uh, probably three weeks ago. And this is a small thing, but he texted me at, I think at 630 in the morning, said, hey, I'm on my way to work and I locked myself out of my place. You know, I I try to help where I can. And I said, well, I'm going to be passing, you know, by this place. And if you want to meet me, I can, you know, give you an extra copy of the key. And so I met him at Chipotle at noon because I had a 15 minute window before I had to go to my next appointment and met me and got the key and uh, worked out well for him. Uh, Another instance, I had an owner that uh, needed me to stop by a property um, on a weekend for something. It was really last minute, kind of had to do with some maintenance that was going on. And so I I went out there uh, and and did it myself. And so that's kind of part of the things I do to, to help my owners and to provide more of a quality service uh, to owners and tenants. So, Awesome. Irene? I recently experienced an, an interesting case in which the my client was purchasing a property as a rental, but in fact, it was going to be their secondary residence. So that created a lot of insurance issues because the lender wanted to see a a rental property policy, a landlord policy in place in order for them to close their deal. But the property was going to be used as a secondary residence where the owner was going to live in. So that was a bit of a of a headache going back and forth with the lender because they the underwriters needed a certain way so it has to be done that way the policy has to be exactly how they require it but uh from an insurance standpoint that is not addressing the true needs of the of of the client of the property owner so we set up two policies in place uh we set up a policy to uh so they could close their loan and we set up the the right the right policy in place uh, which was a homeowner's insurance policy that truly met the needs of this client and um, they had a, a small liability claim which uh, wouldn't have been covered had we had we had insured the property as a, as a rental <laughs> so uh, catching those things uh, is is one of the things that 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 we do by having conversations with with our clients. Uh, we try to be very proactive and address things before they happen. <laughs> so, so it's just pretty handy to have a professional to call. Like in the case where where you're the landlord as an individual, they're just calling you at eleven o'clock in the morning. <laughs> hey, can I have a spare key? And you probably can't do that if you work a full time job. And you don't do this for a living. And for insurance purposes, where do you even begin to get that information from Google? So what about you, Andrew? What's the story that you've got? I have, um, I can't think of one particular, but there's one that's reoccurring. And that's, as you know, we do our evictions. And uh, a lot of the tenants don't understand the process. And it's it's very difficult because they're 
possibly losing their home. Uh, they don't know where they're going to go. And you want to treat them with dignity. And uh, generally, I will take the people out in the hallway and talk to them, uh, try and be as kind as I can, explaining they're not going to come and lock you out today. You still have a week to get it resolved with the uh, property owner, perhaps get a partial payment agreement or something so you can keep the property. And uh, I've had a lot of nice uh, tenants thank me for uh, being a gentleman uh, as far as their case went. That's awesome. I think it's the eviction side. We usually find out about evictions years later because people don't attend those forcible detainer hearings. They don't realize how fast that process is or the fact that it's a judgment. (laughs) They tend to just not really understand that at all. So it's always nice when you hear an attorney on the other side who takes the time to tell them like, hey, this is what's going on and this is how you can solve your problem. Pay your rent. (laughs) (laughs) usually the solution. So we represent tenants a lot. And we want to I want to chat about the issues that we get regarding bills and their legitimacy. So the number one issue that I see is pets. So you deal with like carpet replacement, the deep cleaning, poop removal, all of the fun stuff regarding pets. So can you guys speak a little bit about what what's what's out there? What really are the rights of landlords and, and what's going on on your end? What do you see? Well, from an insurance standpoint, that is something that um, really the insurance policy does not address. Um, Damage is covered when the tenant causes accidental damage to the property. But of course, it's subject to the policy deductible. So uh, that is definitely not something that would make sense to to claim claim over. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I will, I will defer to, to the other two guests to, to address this in, in, in their uh, specialties a lot better than I can. <laughs> I'll explain a little bit more about my process, and it does relate uh, to, to pets or carpet replacement. Uh, one thing to keep in mind uh, that sometimes landlords for, forget or property owners is that everything has a a shelf life or a lifespan. So carpet that is installed, I mean, depending on the grade, may last five years and it may last a less or a little bit longer. And obviously it's going to depend on the tenant. So uh, there's some of that to take into consideration. Um, it's pretty cut and dry. If I installed carpet this year and the tenant moves out and it's pretty hammered and destroyed, I could charge the tenant for most of that. Uh, if the carpet's been in there 10 years, I probably couldn't charge uh, for for any of that, depending on what the condition. So uh, alluding to what Andy talked about earlier, that's why I move in condition reports so important and photographs, uh, videos where appropriate. And so, yeah, you can, you can charge. Uh, it really comes down to documentation. So again, deep cleaning, uh, pet urine stains, things of that nature. If it was documented that it was not like that when they moved in and, and they moved out, then yeah, that's something that can, can be charged. And Having a reputable or a licensed contractor, uh, I, I, I use a company very frequently that provides me itemized bids, which makes it very easy when it comes to deducting for, for tenant uh, deposits, which is usually the biggest dispute. Um, if a tenant ever comes back and asks me after the fact, I say, well, let's have a conversation and, and go from there. And usually that, that helps things go a lot better. Agreed. <laughs> well, I think from our perspective, there's two types of pets. There's the assistive animal, uh, fair housing issues on one side, and then there's the regular pet that the tenant would have. So we want to determine at the beginning of the lease, if they have an assistive animal, you can't charge rent. On 
Uh, you can't charge a deposit. They are responsible for the damages that the pet does, if if anything. But we want to make that determination at the beginning. And if they have an assistive animal, the tenants do need to let us know so that um, we can, again, not charge them those things. Otherwise, it's the regular uh, house or pet that you take. And with uh, carpet damage, there is an Arizona Supreme Court case that says it's really up to the discretion of the trial judge based on the age of the carpet at the beginning of the lease, the length of time, what's normal wear and tear. Um, did they blacklight the carpet to determine if there's pet uh, urine damage? Um, and those are the, kind of the things we look at. Um, we do see with pets also, uh, un unfortunately, occasionally a dog bite case. And mm -hmm. the tenant is responsible for the uh, uh, actions of their dog under Arizona law. So. Denise in your office always tells the story of the owner who cut out a section of the carpet that was urinated and kept it for the court case. And the judge asked her to open it up and had to clear the courtroom. So Ooh. <laughs> that was one way that the, the judge, I think she always says that he said the overwhelming evidence of, <laughs> of how bad it was. And if I could just add real quick to and uh, what Andrew was saying about the uh, the dog bites. Uh, so insurance does address that. And that's why it is so important for landlords to require renter's insurance, because in that case, mm -hmm. that is something that uh, would be addressed under the, uh, the renter's insurance policy. So the tenant's policy will be the primary coverage, which adds an additional layer of protection for the landlord. Huh. Um, so then if, if needed, then the landlord's policy can can come in in, in second place, but um, it is extremely important for landlords to require um, renters insurance because it's it's uh, it's in their best interest and it's only an additional layer of protection for them. Yes, and you also help people with renters insurance, and it is surprisingly affordable. Extremely inexpensive, and um, a lot of people, a lot of tenants say, "Well, I don't have that many." Uh, things, so I don't need renter's insurance. Wrong. Uh, renter's insurance covers a whole lot more than just your personal belongings. It covers, again, your liability, so in case of a dog bite. Um, and it covers if there's any kind of damage in the property that you rent and you cannot live there, it covers those additional living expenses that you're going to incur. So living in a hotel or a a another place that you're going to have to rent, additional transportation, eating out, uh, so, and, and it doesn't even necessarily have to be damage that, that you cause. It can be your neighbor caused the damage and, uh, it affected your own unit. So now you can't live there. Well, you can claim that under your renter's insurance policy and save yourself the headache and the, and the expense, uh, for a very, very, um, affordable premium. Yes. I had some tenants that the house caught fire and they did not have renter's insurance. This was a long time ago. It was a, not ones that I put into the property. Uh, and, uh, you know, they had a dog and they lost all their possessions. It was, it was really sad. And they had, you know, no, nothing to fall back on in that situation. So. Cause a lot of people don't think that they have a lot until it's lost, unfortunately. And most of our clients now are making it mandatory that the tenants get renter's insurance as part of their uh, lease agreement. And as an owner, if you have an incident with a pet biting somebody and you don't take steps to 
address it or remove it and it happens again, then the owner may become liable for their negligence. Yeah. So pets are a, a landmine of legal issues, mm-hmm. apparently. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so tenants that move out a few days after their lease is up, there's a big debate over how much rent do they actually have to pay? So what I get is someone says, well, my lease ended on the 30th and I moved out on the 2nd, so I only owe two days of rent. Either of you have any clarification on that point? (laughs) I'll defer to Andy on this one. (laughs) (laughs) I guess it depends on the lease. If the lease is expired and the tenant's given appropriate notice, we're not going to renew, maybe then you'd charge them two days of rent. But uh, some of the leases we see, they'll charge two months rent as an early termination fee and then uh, another month's rent for every failure to give a 30-day notice. And we have to advise them on if you get it re-rented within a week, you're not entitled to all these additional fees. And um, some of the leases they'll put in there that they forfeit uh, their deposit, which uh, you can't do under Arizona law. You have to itemize it and give the tenant credit for it. So, Andy, is it something that you see that can be addressed with an upfront conversation uh, with the landlord? Hey, I'm going to need a little more time to move out. Or is it very strict if it passes the... Um... Uh, most most of our clients have been very flexible in under those circumstances. I literally just did that this last week. I uh, had a tenant that gave notice to be out. Uh, I scheduled a time to come out and then he emailed me that morning, said, hey, I need another week. And if it's something that continue to drag out, there are notices and things that yeah. one can do if they're just squatting, so to speak. Uh, but I knew he was getting stuff out. So I had a conversation with the homeowner and said, hey, you know, so essentially we just charged him for every single day that he was in and, and not beyond that. And some of it came out of his deposit. Um, so that's how we handled yeah. that. Yeah, a problem uh, comes up when you have a new tenant that wants to move into the property and the old tenant has not given their termination notice. And so you've got new people wanting to move in, the prior tenant's still in the uh, rental house, and really your only remedy under those circumstances is to file what's called a holdover eviction. Uh, The judge can't assess them two months of rent plus an additional month's rent for not moving when they should have. Uh, So we use that as an encouragement that the tenants will move out when they should and give them that uh, information ahead of time. Awesome. So the key is if you're planning on staying longer as a tenant, communicate and with your landlord. And as a landlord, they're probably going to be reasonable. Fair? I would agree. We would hope so. I won't speak for all (laughs) landlords out there. (laughs) So post-move out damages. Uh, People forget this part in when they move out of a property, whether they were evicted or they just simply moved out. Um, Can you guys speak to that point a little bit more? Well, the um, Arizona Landlord Tenant Act and hopefully the lease uh, does spell out that the tenant can be present at a move-out inspection. They just have to request that, and then the landlord will tell them when it's going to take place. So uh, we encourage, make sure the uh, if you do a move-out inspection, try and do it with the tenant so you can both see the charges that may or may not be assessed. And uh, a lot of it just depends, again, on how long the tenant was in there normal wear and tear and 
those kinds of issues. Yeah. Just normal. Because when we see post-move-out damages, we'll see repayment of concessions occasionally, the early termination fee, the failure to give notice fee, and those can add up pretty quick. You can get to $3,000, $4,000 pretty fast on that alone. But then you end up with extra cleaning fees. They forgot to clean out the refrigerator, forgot to clean the baseboards, didn't get the carpet cleaned. So we see a litany of charges that happen post-move out that sometimes people just don't know about. I think one of the key points is sometimes tenants won't give a forwarding address when they move. So if they're expecting a security deposit or an itemized statement, they never get it because it got sent to the address that they used to live at. Uh, how do you address that problem, Nick? Most of the time, I don't have that issue except for, I, I would say evictions. I usually don't get a forwarding address. I, I ask for it, but most of the time, they, they don't really want to communicate with me. I've dealt with a lot of evictions over the years. You know, I do my best to hedge against that because it's not something great for the landlord. But for the most part, I, I do get forwarding addresses. If I think there's going to be an issue where I, I, I don't have it, you know, I have to protect myself and the landlord. Uh, so I will send it, uh, you know, if, if there is any type left over, uh, what we've kind of been encouraged to do is to send, uh, you know, a copy of all the the charges or the de- the deposit disposition form, and I'll send that uh, via certified mail so I have proof that I sent it. And then the actual check I'll send regular mail to whatever last address that I have on file, so that way it doesn't get held up in the mail. Sending it certified for the actual check. Yeah, because those just you end up at the post office for two months and then you get it back. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully it just gets forward. Any tips on that issue, Andrew? Well, they, they did change the Landlord-Tenant Act about a year ago. And normally the landlord has 14 business days to either refund or itemize the deposit after the lease ends, uh, keys have been returned and the tenant makes a demand. And if the landlord, then the landlord may be subject to treble damages if they don't properly itemize the deposit. Uh, but the law has now changed that if the tenant doesn't question or challenge the deductions within 60 days after the landlord mails them their copy of their itemization, then the uh, charges become um, correct and can't be challenged. So they become per se valid? Yes. Yikes. <clears throat> that is a fast turnaround time. I mean, I'm a, I'm a consumer rights attorney, so obviously I have an issue with that one. But <laughs> that is the law. That's the state of affairs. Um, so let's talk law, repairs. What is required? And can you explain the self-help thing <laughs> to some of our tenants? Yeah, there's a section under the Landlord-Tenant Act for remedies by a tenant. One is called a non-compliance notice. They can give a landlord a list of things that they believe are the landlord's responsibilities. And if he doesn't uh, make those repairs, they can terminate the lease and move out as one option. The other option they have is they can give the landlord notice to fix X amount of things. And if the landlord doesn't do that within 10 days, the tenant will hire their own licensed and bonded contractor, get a lien waiver from the contractor that he's not going to put a lien on the property for the work he did. Uh, the tenants pay the contractor, and then they can deduct half a month's rent uh, or $300, whichever is greater off their next month's rent. So uh, do these notices, is, does it count if they just call and leave a voicemail? Mm-hmm. Legally not. Really, as, <laughs> as the uh, law stands today, they 
uh, must be in writing and physically handed to somebody or sent certified regular mail. And if they're sent certified mail, they're deemed received five days after mail. Um, and so... Um, what about text and email? Uh, if it's in the lease and the parties have agreed to that, I think sometime fairly soon they'll, they'll change the Landlord-Tenant Act and allow that. So now if you can, if you want to communicate by email and then you just make sure your lease has uh, that, that the tenant also agrees to acknowledge receipt of the email. Perfect. Thank you. Anything to add, Nick? Uh, not really uh, much to add. It, really, it's, it's, you know, the thing that I might bring up is as far as what's an emergency and what's not an emergency. Yes. Uh, so, you know, fire, safety, um, in in classes I attend where Denise is teaching or or. I don't think I've been to one of your classes in a while. They'll they'll say fire, flood, or blood just kind of as a <laughs> – but, you know, HVAC failure uh, or heat failure, depending on the time of, of month. So fires, July, no AC. July AC, that would be considered an emergency. Um, fire safety issue, a complete plumbing backup or a flood, things of that nature considered an emergency. If the window's not uh, closing, you know, just right or latching or whatnot, that would that wouldn't be considered an emergency. Still needs to act uh, appropriately. So uh, during those situations, the landlord is obligated to act quicker, basically to act within forty eight hours. Does that make sure I get that right? Yeah, if it's something more of an emergency, yeah. So what about a, a holiday weekend? Forty. I mean, if it's an emergency, it's an emergency. So I mean, it's day or night i mean if it was a flood i mean you don't you don't plan an emergency so you just have things set up in place and most property management companies have an after hours line to handle things of that nature and there are contractors that that do go out on on holidays for for those types of things it it costs a little bit more of course and the landlord might not be thrilled to pay the extra cost, but to protect them uh, legally, it's important to have those systems and processes in place. Agreed. I would just like to uh, tag along that uh, with the flood. Flood is specifically excluded from the insurance policy. So in order for there to be coverage for flood, you, the landlord has to have flood insurance. And if the property is not in the flood zone, it is very inexpensive. So it's worth um, looking into as that is a, a specific policy exclusion. So a plumbing flood would count as a flood? No. Okay. That's considered, that's consider, well, uh, well, if it's, if it's uh, water backup, um, there's a difference. Uh, that is, water backup is usually limited to a certain amount name on the policy unless it's changed. Uh, if there is um, accidental discharge of, of a pipe, for example, that's, that's different. So what, if the water seeps from above, that's water damage. If the water comes from um, the ground up, that's flood. Nice distinction. Okay. I should clarify. Yeah, when I'm speaking of flood, usually, especially in Arizona, we're talking about a pipe bursting in the wall and water coming mm -hmm. out the front door. Yes. And those are restoration companies that you're calling mm -hmm. at that point. Exactly. Yes. So should a tenant ever call a restoration company? The tenant should always call the landlord uh, to let them know what's going on because if they call out their, their own company and, you know, the leases spell this out. And that's where a, a homeowner or a landlord want to take a look at what's in their lease, um, requiring the tenants for any type of repairs to contact them because you have no idea you know, if someone's insured, if they have the proper uh, 
licenses to do that kind of work, and that can create a whole another litany of problems if they're calling anyone and everyone to come fix things without notifying the landlord. Yes, I have seen that happen firsthand a few times, and I usually have to give the tenant the bad news of you should have called the landlord because you're the one who signed that contract. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Never ideal. And there is a uh, section in the Landlord-Tenant Act that directly addresses uh, failure to supply essential services, which heat, air conditioning are considered. And it does say that if a landlord deliberately or negligently fails to provide these services, then the tenant can either uh, sue for damages, go out and get the rental, like an AC unit, and deduct the cost of that, um, or go to a hotel or motel. But they've got to give the landlord notice first. And then um, most of our clients, we encourage them, uh, you know, give the tenant the days off that they were without the AC. But uh, technically, if they didn't want to do that and they couldn't, and if the landlord got let's see, uh, uh, contacted, uh, let's say, an AC company, um, and it took them four or five days to get get out there, get parts or whatever, that would not be considered negligent or deliberate on the part of the landlord. Good to know. Very fascinating, because I think from the tenant side, they get really frustrated because it's July, it's hot, it's been longer than 48 hours, and the issue still isn't fixed. Mm -hmm. So if there are landlords waiting on a repair company to actually come out and get the parts, then you need to just kind of suffer through it. Well, we we still encourage our clients, you know, hey, it's middle of July, they don't have AC for three or four days, you know, give them something for that. Uh, It's good PR with your tenants. No, I Agreed. dealt with this uh, over the summer, uh, home warranty company. Those are things that are, they're great because they cover a lot of things and they can be tricky. So it, ordering a part for an air conditioning in the middle of July, getting them out there, uh, the tenant was basically without, there were two ACs in the home, but was without one of them for about two, three weeks. So they got a hefty credit is what the, we offered to, you know, the landlord offered to either put them in a hotel. They said, no, we'd rather take the credit. So then we ended up crediting uh, those days. I think actually credited um, uh, 125% of the daily rate uh, for the inconvenience. Uh, they, they've been a great tenant. So it's just, sometimes it's one of those things where you're, when you're dealing with something like a home warranty company where it can get dragged out even longer. So, so communication again. Absolutely. (laughs) So what about uh, rental housing discrimination laws? Sometimes I I hear about a tenant who, or a landlord, a new landlord, they bought a house and they don't want any of those pesky kids. (laughs) Can you guys speak on that a little bit? Well, um, the insurance policy for the landlord will always, uh, they have, the insurance company has has a duty to defend. So even though the allegation may not be true or it may even be fraudulent, the insurance company will pay for the cost of defense in case of an allegation. So um, that's step one. And then depending uh, depending on the policy, depending on the insurance company that the landlord is, is insured through, um, uh, that is something that may, be, that may be covered. Interesting. From a property management perspective, it's, you know, it, it, it's having that conversation with the owner up front and educating them on what's, you know, what I'm able to do, what I'm not able to do. And, you know, if the owner becomes adamant about certain questions like that or wanting certain things, then at that point I have a 
you know, basically an opportunity to make a business decision, you know, is the liability worth that? And, you know, most owners don't, (laughs) most owners don't, don't do that once they're explained the fair housing laws, but uh, there, there are some that are adamant. Denise in our office handles all of our fair housing. So I'm a not quite up to speed on on all of it, um, but there's seven categories, and the golden rule is treat everybody the same as far as the application mm-hmm. process, conditions of the lease agreement, and I can share one kind of crazy story if you want to give me a minute. Yes. Uh, yeah. A <laughs> uh, tenant's out walking her uh, dog in the apartment complex, and um, elderly lady uh, gets uh, charged by a pit bull, and they follow. She calls the manager. They follow the pit bull to this other tenant's house, uh, unauthorized pet. It was um, in their tenant's folder. They had a picture of the dog, which was a chihuahua that had somehow <laughs> morphed into a pit bull. Wow. And so they served the uh, tenant a notice to get rid of the dog, and the tenant said, if you get rid of the dog, I'll shoot, or try and get rid of the dog, I'll kill whoever does that. So we served the immediate eviction notice, got to court. He hands us his bankruptcy filings. And under bankruptcy court, <laughs> you can't take any action until you get uh, permission from the bankruptcy judge, which usually takes a month or longer. Um, yeah. And if you violate the automatic stay in bankruptcy court, it's a $10,000 fine. Um, so we tried to settle it with the attorney general's office. They just wanted the person to be paid, uh, got the stay order lifted, um, showed up in court, and the tenant now had a 15-year-old son that was a member of the gang going around the complex threatening people that if you come to court and testify against my dad, it'll be the last breath you ever take. Ooh, witness and, tampering. So we, we had, I think it was 20 of the residents come to the court to testify about the dog. Um, The judge ruled in our favor and the tenants filed a fair housing complaint, got a court order in place, keeping them in the property while the case uh, was pending. Wow. And uh, eight months later, the owner paid him $125,000 to drop the fair housing complaint because uh, they, um, they were a minority uh, they, um, oh, they found out the, uh, drug, or drug, I'm sorry, a gang kid, uh, had attention deficit disability to a small amount. So he was handicapped. And then they went back seven years on the, uh, owner's property and found that five years prior they had uh, evicted tenants for doing similar things, but gave them a week to move instead of the 12 to 24 hours because the parents had brought in proof that they'd moved the kids out of the state. So now they were alleging that along as differential treatment. And he had paid 80000 in legal fees to that point, and the case was still a year and a half away from going to a jury trial. Wow. And so he just caved in and, and paid. Yeah, sometimes those principal arguments are not worth it. It is so important to follow the same process, the same procedure with everybody every time. So Clearly. <laughs> Could cost you money. <laughs> That is a crazy story. Yeah. I don't know how I feel about that one. That's uh, weird. There's a lot of ups and downs on that. <laughs> there was, yeah. <laughs> so with the eviction, Andrew, can you explain what the process is and how fast it is in Arizona? Yeah. The first uh, step is uh, the notice. They have to, the landlord has to serve the appropriate notice. Is it for five-day uh, non-payment of rent or some kind of non-compliance notice? Then the paperwork gets filed 
and a process server has to serve it upon the uh, tenants, and they can do that by posting the court notice on the door and sending it certified mail, and then you get a court date set up, which is usually about a week after the filing. Most of the judges try and get the thing resolved at the first appearance, but if not, then they'll set it over for trial, which is usually just two or three days uh, later. And if the tenant is found guilty of forcible detainer, probably should say responsible guilty is kind of an old legal argument, but then they get five days to move unless it's been what we call an immediate, which is criminal activity, threats, property damage, the real serious things that go on drug, um, drugs, that type of thing. And so the normal tenant would get five days to move. That's five calendar days. And then they, if they don't move, a constable can be ordered, and they usually take two to four days to come out and change locks uh, and make the uh, tenant vacate and leaving their – if they leave their property behind, then they've got to inventory it and hold it for 14 days before the uh, tenant uh, – and the tenant has to pay reasonable storage fees to get the property. So within a month, essentially, is the whole process. Pretty much, yeah, close to three weeks, I would say. Yeah, because I think a lot of times when we get people from other states who move here, especially from the East Coast, they are so shocked at how fast they can be evicted from a house or an apartment. And I think the uh, California is, uh, yes. is is one place we see a lot of people questioning the laws here as opposed to what they were over there. Yeah, um, and some leases don't even really have a grace period on rent, so... You know, they're used to 10-day, 5-day grace periods, and here it's like, nope, it was due on the 1st, and you don't have a grace period. It's like, yeah, you can get served with a 5-day notice on the 6th. <laughs> it's kind of a big deal. So read your lease agreements, tenants. Uh, and the notices, you know, have to be served legally too, which is yes. physically handing it to somebody or certify mailing. Yeah, and that takes a couple of days. Yeah. So it's a fast process. Five, five days for mailing mm-hmm. for notice so really a five-day notice turns more into like a 10-day thereabouts before it's counted as received and past the time to take action from there yeah so in your experience as a property manager like normally do you give leeway to your tenants who pay rents or do you just cancel the 10-day notice or five-day notice a lot of it comes down to is this a one-time occurrence the the main thing is, again, going back to fair housing is we have to treat everyone legally. And so I have to be careful about how I handle things in relation to that as well. Um, because one tenant say, well, you gave, you know, that person some leeway and not me. So uh, within the lease itself, I already have built in three days of grace. So rent's not late till the fifth. So there's already some grace built into the lease to help them out. And then as far as Everything else, you know, legally, if they pay all the fees and everything, uh, then, you know, they're welcome to stay or there's no issue at that point. A lot of also depend on my conversation uh, with the landlord themselves and say, hey, uh, they owe, you know, $1,000. They've brought me, you know, a 900. Do you want to accept it? And nine times out of 10 owners are going to say, yeah, go ahead and go ahead and take it and then go from there. Awesome. Anything to add from either of you? Andrew, Irene? Yeah, I thought you covered that pretty well. So let's talk about fun stuff in the news in these short-term rentals. We're seeing the super rise of Airbnb and just vacation rentals in general. How does that affect insurance and property management? (laughs) And what can you do from an eviction standpoint for someone who's maybe holding over longer than their stay? 
Well, short-term rentals uh, is an extremely important conversation with your insurance agent because the policy may exclude that depending on what happens. There are more insurance companies that are accommodating the needs of those landlords that have the short-term rental uh, needs. So it's a, an extremely important conversation to have. Uh, homeowners insurance policies usually, uh, generally, I should say, do not address um, short-term rental use on a property. Um, and uh, Airbnb offers a certain amount of coverage, which is primary coverage for the person that is using their property for Airbnb purposes. However, that coverage is designed to mainly protect the company, Airbnb. So it doesn't um, truly address the full needs of the property owner. So the property owner should have the right policy in place, depending on um, how often is it used as, uh, is the property used as short-term rental? So how many months out of the year? How often? So that is a conversation to have that is extremely important. I also find out that the coverage through Airbnb excludes loss of rent. So if the uh, short-term tenant that's staying there causes damage to the property and, um, well, it has to be repaired because it's not um, inhabitable, that loss of income is uh, not covered under Airbnb, among other things, uh, punitive damage, um, any kind of liquor-related claim is also excluded. <laughs> so uh, definitely the right policy in place for short-term rentals is the way to go. <laughs> What I've seen uh, in conversations and in, in different class I've gone to and talking about market activity, uh, there's a few more hoops to jump through uh, with Airbnb. The biggest thing, if, if an owner is considering doing an Airbnb, and I do basically strictly long-term unfurnished rental management. However, I have friends that do short-term rentals and uh, am familiar with, with that uh, model. Uh, the thing that an owner want to check is, number one, most homeowners associations, if it's in a homeowners association, more than likely they're not going to permit it. Yep. So if you, as soon as you do it, you're probably going to get a letter from the HOA within a month. Uh, the other thing to, to be aware of um, is, uh, yeah, obviously the insurance uh, and then things like rental taxes also change a little bit. I think they usually change it to lodging tax at that point, which is a higher tax rate. Uh, depends on the the city, and I think uh, each, even within each city, there's different laws. I think are being discussed or passed. I know, I think residents in the the last uh, market update went to there was a you know some residents in some of the higher upscale neighborhoods like Paradise Valley mm -hmm. or whatnot, or you know they're trying to pass things to make it a lot more difficult for those with that type of scenario just because of different problems that have arisen. So uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Uh, so just. I would say if someone's considering that model purchasing or having just to make sure you look and see what area you're purchasing it in and what things may affect it in the long term. Agreed. Yeah, because those HOA fines can be pretty excessive uh, for violations. In, they will get their money. Yeah. yeah. We've been fortunate. We haven't had really any BRNB uh, issues come up. So That's good. Hasn't like, gotten that far yet. I'd like to share a story. This yes. happened to one of uh, one of my clients. Uh, she owns a 10-unit apartment building. Uh, a tenant leased a unit on an annual term. And later she found out that that tenant was listing the unit on Airbnb. So the tenant was making bank 
subletting. Sub, yeah, subletting that unit on Airbnb. That is why since then I recommend all of my uh, landlord clients Google your property address every now and then see what comes up. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty terrifying. Please, mm-hmm. everyone do that. Most leases will have a, a no subletting policy, mm-hmm. uh, especially long-term ones. So um, there's definitely action that can be taken mm-hmm. in, in that situation. When you realize that's happening, agreed. Mm-hmm. So let's wrap this up with one pro tip that you can give our listeners related, uh, related to your industry. So let's start with Andrew. What is mm-hmm. one pro tip that you can give to people who are thinking about residential rentals? Well, let's see. Um, I, I would say there are plenty of classes around. Take a class, familiarize yourself with what the laws are. Um, our office does it. City of Phoenix uh, has uh, seminars, and uh, there are a lot of other ones out there. Great tip. Uh, I, would, I would say uh, do your homework. Uh, you know, call different people. Uh, that kind of goes along with what Andy talked about, taking a class, uh, and then um, – ultimately look at all the numbers for your bottom line because that's the biggest thing for every landlord is to see if it makes sense profitability wise yep great tip (laughs) for me my recommendation is develop a strong relationship with your insurance agent a good insurance broker can be a strong advocate for uh, you and your property in case of a claim uh, and can be big help uh, with the insurance when dealing with the insurance company. And a good insurance agent will look out for you in ways on how to create layers of protection, protect your assets. Like umbrella policies. Like umbrella policies. <laughs> and a good agent can provide valuable advice as your needs change. Love it. So I think that covers everything. Uh, thank you guys for being here. Please tell our listeners how they can reach you. Let's start with Andrew. Website or... And phone number, whatever works. Yeah, website is www.drevictor.com and um, office phone number 602-230-0088. My website is uh, www.bullseyeaz.com, office number 480-907-9050, and email is nick at bullseyeaz.com. Well, Independence Insurance, uh, we're in North Phoenix on 32nd Street and Shea. And our website is www.indieinsurance.com. Phone number is 480-656-1036. And email is info at indieinsurance.com. Love it. So thank you, Irene Plosky, Nick Stratton, and Andrew Hole for being here and giving us the legitimate perspective. And thank you to our sponsor, AZ Credit Law Group, providing legal services to help people improve their credit. You can visit us online at azclg.com. And thank you to Phoenix Business Radio X. And as always, to you listening. And join us next time on January 2nd at 3 p.m. for our next episode in the world of debt, Zombie Debt. I'm Rochelle Poulton, legitimately yours, and I'll talk to you next time. Mm-hmm.